Hi, everyone. I've spent the last 20 years uh, working with activists all around the world who are choosing to take out their phones and their cameras to share the evidence and the accounts of what they see around them, what is right and what is wrong. Um, and the work of myself and my colleagues at the Human Rights Group Witness focus on how do they do that more safely? How do they do it in ways that people can trust that information? And how do they share that information in a way that leads to change? Um, and we've worked with groups in Burma who went across the border during the dictatorship to show the atrocities. Um, community activists in Syria who showed uh, the impact of barrel bombs from the Russian Air Force. Um, Favela-based residents in Rio de Janeiro who show police violence right now, occurring right now this week in, in Rio. And of course, we work with people in the US who face the brunt of rights violations uh, by institutions like the immigration authorities in the US. And we've been at the forefront of de the development of a field known as video's evidence, this idea that as more and more people gather footage with their cell phones, we have far more sources of accountability in the world. So guess what? 18 months ago, when we started hearing about deep fakes, naturally, we thought this was something we should pay attention to. And we thought that particularly because it went to the heart of our mission and because of the way in which it was being framed. So the journalistic headlines were like, technopocalypse, infopocalypse, it's the end of truth. And we were like, whoa, hold up. Right? That makes a great journalistic headline. It doesn't give us much of a roadmap for how we protect the real value we've started to see in this explosion of social media, mobile connectivity. So we said, okay, so now what? Right? You know, that's great for a journalist to say this, not that useful um, for a um, human rights group. And so I've spent the last 18 months working out how do we prepare better. Um, and so we've done everything from bringing together the first expert meetings globally on this, talked to the platforms, we brought together leading journalists and fact-checkers with the researchers, uh, we've talked to people in Congress in the US, um, and most importantly, we've said we have to look at this from a global perspective, not just a narrow parochial political perspective. So, first thing, okay, I want to reassure you, keep calm, uh, the, the damn sky is not falling, uh, yet. Right? We are in this really interesting moment where the threat of deepfakes is generally larger than the impact. Um, but, and in case you're thinking, hmm, should I worry about this really? I think you should take this seriously. And that's for many of the reasons that Giorgio cited. Um, this is getting better fast. Um, it's getting better in terms of audio simulation. The barriers to entry are falling. It's going to be on your mobile device. That makes a big difference. Uh, it's going to be a commodity or a service. And people are starting to build tools that will be available to billions of people, not just people who like open source repositories. So those are important concerns. And then we should add to that the fact that the cognitive science suggests that the way we receive video, including simulated video, is different from the way we look at text or photos. So the proliferation of fake video is really critical. The second final thing there is we also need to look at it in the context of other trends of misinformation, that there are many people who are trying to get better and better at weaponizing social media and information out there. 
So we need to de-escalate on the one hand, but we also need to prepare. We need to do both simultaneously. We need to de-escalate because the rhetoric creates problems. Right? If we tell everyone they can't believe anything, they'll start to believe they can't believe anything, even if there is no basis in reality for that for most media you encounter online. And it's not clear we're in a rupture moment, and I'm going to talk about that. It's not clear we're in a rupture versus an evolution. And what I mean by that is that, actually, should we just say this is completely different from before, or is this an evolution from existing problems? And then finally, we've got an opportunity now to take action before we're in the eye of the storm. So I want to talk about three elements, um, deep fakes in context, threat models, and what to do now. So to start with, a short history of can you trust your lying eyes. So um, this morning, a southern Sudanese friend sent me a very graphic and disturbing cell phone video and two accompanying photos of violence in South Sudan. My question is whether it's possible to look at the metadata, to pull out the data it was filmed, and possibly the GPS coordinates. This was a piece of text message that was sent to me and colleagues a few years back. And we looked at the video. It's a horrible graphic video of some people being burnt alive. And we said, huh, we've seen that before. We saw that in the Ivory Coast a few years ago. And then we did an image search on Google. Pretty simple, good way to verify an image. And we saw that it had been shared in Burma, in Indonesia, in Georgia, and perhaps originally in Kenya in 2007. And the reason I'm sharing this example is it's an example of what we're already dealing with. We have had a decade of manipulated media at scale. Most of it are what are called miscontextualized videos. You know, you grab a video of one place, you share it, it's claiming another place. And we've had a decade of videos that also include edited videos. This is a very well-known example. It's a child safety or traffic safety video from Pakistan that was lightly edited, then shared on WhatsApp in India, implying that people were coming into communities to kidnap children. And it led to the deaths of multiple people. It's just a very lightly edited video shared in a messaging app. So you don't know where it comes from, it just gets forwarded to you. And this is a classic example of manipulated videos, which we see sometimes in our world. They're not actually that common, but you see manipulated videos like the video of Nancy Pelosi slowed down um, to imply that uh, she was uh, drunk or physically incapable. Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House of Congress in the US. And this video was shared online a couple of months ago. And then occasionally we see staged videos. Uh, this is an example from Burma shared by, in fact, the spokesperson of the equivalent of the prime minister, claiming to show Rohingya, the minority in the north, burning their own homes, and it's completely staged. It's just staged with actors. And all of these things are happening in coordination with some, some related weaponization problems that we see out there. So the firehose of falsehood. People pump out lots of contradictory accounts as a strategy to confuse people. The idea of micro-targeting, just send it to a small people, I just want to reach you two right there. Or bots or cyborgs that push things out at scale. And the use of what are called data voids, which is when you find a search term that no one is really provided content for and you create some content for it. In this case, malicious or malignant content. So, okay, so this comes in a context already of how people deal with this type of media. How should we prioritize the threats around this? So Giorgio started talking about this. In the conversation in the US, this has primarily been about deepfakes and national politicians. The 2018 elections first, when we didn't have deepfakes in the 2018 elections, it became deepfakes in the 2020 elections. The problem with that is it's so narrow and parochial to the US, and it ignores very real problems that already exist, like gender-based violence. Already people are being targeted, ordinary people and journalists. And it ignores what actually, if you talk to people globally, what they're worried about. So we've done a series of workshops globally talking to people who already are at risk 
from misinformation. So just last month in Brazil, and the things they said were, we're not worried about our president. Our president is probably just fine. We're worried about someone trying to attack us as women journalists or civic activists, try and falsify our identities and share this. In this picture, you can see we did a wall chart where we asked people to put stickers on what they cared most about. And from that, you can see them saying, actually, these are what we worry about. It's not the national level questions. Or they worry about these problems of digital wildfire where people share images rapidly on WhatsApp um, and you don't know what they're about, but they incite violence. And they worry about compromising the access, this hard-won access to justice they found. You know those videos you shoot as a favela resident that finally get a police officer held accountable? Are we now going to get every time that happens, someone's going to release an edit that cuts out the incriminating weapon or changes the face of someone in it? How's that going to happen? And they worry about these big macro questions, like everyone's just going to say from now on forward that everything is a deep fake. They're going to have this plausible deniability. And as Giorgio said, we've already heard this around the few major political cases so far. So the Ali Bongo case, another case in Brazil, in Malaysia, we've had a he said, he said around that's a deep fake. And they worry about this idea, which was captured by Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher in 1974, of this idea of kind of floods of falsehood that people will no longer be able to believe anything, and they'll just step back from the political space because they'll say everything is not true. They also worry that this is deeply embedded in those trends I mentioned earlier. It's like a Russian doll problem in relation to bots and cyborgs and data voids. So people have a sophisticated understanding of where this is going to play out. So what solutions do we need in that context? So I want to talk about four solutions. Um, I'm going to talk about what can we teach people to spot in, the, in terms of deepfakes. Um, how do we build on existing journalistic capacity? What do we want from people who build tools in this space? And what should platforms do? First thing, um, so who here thinks that deepfakes don't blink? This is such a good, well-informed audience. I'm so happy because often when I talk to people individually, they're more willing to admit that they think deepfakes don't blink. And this is a consequence of a lot of media attention about a year ago on a research that showed that uh, deepfakes didn't tend to blink. They had this rather sort of glaring stare. The research was released, and two weeks later, the researcher received someone who sent them a deepfake that blinked. And the reason I mention this case is we've got to be really careful about telling people about the kind of current Achilles heel of an algorithm. Deepfakes don't blink. There's going to be distortion around the mouth, because you're going to remember that in six months' time, and by that time, the algorithm will have improved. So we've got to be really careful about avoiding just saying to people, you're going to be able to spot it, because the research already shows that you can't spot lip sync manipulation that well, and it's going to get better and better. So we shouldn't be telling people things like spot, you know, whether they blink. We should be encouraging media literacy that's about where does this come from, who does it come from, what corroborates it. And we can build on the fact that, as I mentioned, we've had a decade of experience thinking about manipulated media. This is not new. Journalists have been thinking about it, like the folks I put on the screen here from First Draft or Witness or Comproba or Bellingcat. And so we've been trying to bring together people to learn about what actually would be useful for the people who already spend their time trying to deep detect deep fakes. So we brought together people who think about open source investigation with journalists and deep fakes researchers. And what happens when you do that is the journalists say, we need solutions that are going to be in real time that work with pieces of media that have been shared in messaging groups that are compressed. We're going to have to explain it to our audience. We can't just tell them, trust us. And that may be very different from the tools that are being built if you just view this as a, a, a conversation detached from reality, a technical conversation. Now, 
you may have reached this point if you are coming from the commercial sector. Um, okay, this is cool. When do we get to the business and the creative possibilities? And there are undoubtedly some. Unfortunately, I'm not the person who talks about them, so sorry. But if you are going to build a tool in this space, um, you should be thinking about the question of toolmaker responsibility. So I'm going to use an example to illustrate this. How many police officers in the video? Just shout it out. Don't be shy. Three? Three? Any lowering on three? Five. Awesome. Okay. Actually, there are four. There's one in the foreground here. That police officer was removed in about 10 minutes by some colleagues at the New York Times using a tool that's available in Adobe After Effects. And so the, the reason I'm showing this is because there is a responsibility now as people start to build the tools for this creation to make sure they build the tools that enable you to detect it. Because we were able to detect that forensically. We ran it through tests. But to the human eye, you don't see it. And if you're a consumer, there is no readily available tool to show that in 10 minutes, we remove that person in the video. And so there are lots of people building tools to allow you to synthesize and fake. There is a responsibility on them to build the tools to allow us to detect at scale, too. Final thing I want to talk about is platform responsibility. Um, social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Google, social media search places, again, the places where this content is shared. We need to really focus on what they should do. That has to start with prioritizing the human rights activists, the people who should be at the center of this conversation, the people who are most harmed by existing problems. And then we need to ask, what do we want them to do in terms of detecting this content, signaling it to users, and moderating it? And I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of that. We should be encouraging them to build as much capacity as detection and make that as available to as many people as possible so that we have the capacity to make discernment ourselves. They should be working out how they tell people that pieces of content have been manipulated even when it's invisible to the eye or the ear. We don't have good research about how to say to you or I, this has been manipulated, you can't see it. And they should be really cautious about moderating because we've seen the harms that are caused by platforms saying, here's a vast wave of content, how do we take it down? So keep calm. The damn sky is not yet falling, and now is the opportunity to prepare but not to panic. Thank you.